By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Deep Dive featuring the one and only Derek Sivers. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Ali. Nice to finally, uh, we have never talked virtually. We have only spoken in person in Cambridge. Exactly. Yeah. That was, uh, that was so weird because like normally when, if, if I reach out to someone that I kind of admire on the internet, it's, it's always like a virtual conversation, but the first time we met was actually in real life, which was, which was. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you might be able to, um, if we might be able to start, if you could just give us a, a quick introduction to kind of who you are and what you do, if, if that kind of makes sense. <laughs> sure. That kind of makes sense. Um, who I am, um, the background in a minute or less, let's try that. Sounds good. Uh, uh, my whole life, ever since I was 14, all I wanted was to be a successful musician, so I was completely obsessed with being a successful musician. That's all I did um, until I was 28, 29. And I had kind of achieved my dreams for the most part. I had achieved some pretty good success in music and bought a house with the money I made making music. And then I started a little hobby website to sell my CD called CD Baby. But it uh, totally took off and became the largest seller of independent music on the web from uh, 1998 to 2008. In 2008, after doing it for 10 years, I felt done. So I walked away, sold the company, and have just been an author, writer, speaker, pop philosopher guy since then. How's that? That that was pretty good. So <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Um, so I first I first heard heard about you through when you were on Tim Ferriss's podcast for the first time, mm -hmm. which would have been like years and years ago now. Can you can you remember when that was? That was December 2015. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah. So that, that, that was ages ago. And then you, you had this book, Anything You Want, which I've, I, I often list as one of the three books that's most changed my life. So kind of, wow. again, thank, thank you very much for that. See, that is, it's, it's strange to me that I know people that have wrestled with books for like 10 years, you know, their PhD thesis kind of thing. And, and that little book uh, I wrote in 10 days and it was just effortless. And I didn't think anything would come of it. It was just Seth Godin asked me to share my lessons learned and I spit them out into 80 tiny little chapters and he published it like two months later and I didn't think it would go very far. So it's nice to see how it's traveled. Yeah, and I, th I think that's like one of the really kind of, uh, so initially when I first read the book, it was sort of, it's subtitled 40 Lessons for a New Kind of Entrepreneur. And I got a lot of kind of life advice, but also kind of, business advice from it that I really needed at the time. But now kind of when I when I reread it, I, I see it more as an inspiration for essentially how, how doable it seems to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, it's, yeah, you know, some people think that writing a book is a big, serious thing. You know, it, it's got this uh, history behind it. These, these legends of writers going off into the mountains to sweat blood into the pages with their, uh, you know, quill pen dipping into their veins and yeah. bring their soul into onto the pages. But I think it is so much better to not think in terms of a book, 
but to think in terms of ideas that you want to share. And then each core idea, you just make that one article per idea and never more than one idea per article. Like if you've got a second idea, you need to make that a separate article. Think in terms of articles. And then most importantly, you share the articles in the public as you go. So then you're also not making this situation where all of your writing and all of your ideas kind of kept jailed until finally it's released, you know. Instead, one idea at a time, you can put it out into the world and and air it out. And there's something that happens when, when the public uh, encounters this one idea at a time, they might ask a few questions that you never thought of. And so now you can continue to develop that idea before its permanent inclusion in a book. Um, and then the big idea is, I would say, I shouldn't use that word twice. Uh, uh, then the plan is that when you've got all of the ideas that you feel uh, make this book, then you kind of wrap a bow around it, call it a book as this collection of articles. Now you call them chapters instead of articles and you've got a book. And it, that is so much easier. And I think it's a healthier process than thinking I need to go write a 300 page book. And this is going to take a long time. Oh, yeah, that's that's so interesting, because like for, for the last year or so, I've been kind of toying with the idea of writing a book, but I I, 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 th I think I fall into the, into this trap of considering it like a a big deal with a you know a big B and a big D, and so I I in 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 my head I've got it like okay so first I need to I need to spend a few months just preparing the outline and then I need to spend you know a few months in the planning stage and then kind of, <laughs> but, <laughs> but now and that you mention it yeah my own funeral yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah and so, then after I'm dead they will release it absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, actually, a, a couple of days ago, I I sort of made a commitment to myself, and I I, I posted about this in my email newsletter that I was going to write a thousand words every day, uh, and so far for the last three days, I've been writing a thousand words every day, and just kind of kind of ha kind of having a low bar for the things that I'm writing has made it actually pretty easy. Like it takes me twenty minutes just at a at an iPad or at a computer to just kind of type away, and then a thousand cool. words comes out. Um, so I've I've been thinking that hey, this would be a good a good time to kind of get on with that book. But I, so I, I really like the way of thinking about it as one article at a time, just like one key idea. Yeah, it also presents the ideas better. I often feel bad when I'm reading a brilliant 350 page book that has a brilliant idea buried in page 293. And I know that hardly anybody reads that far in a book. Um, you know, I think like what, 5% of the people that buy a book actually read the whole thing, right? So the number of people that are going to make it to that brilliant idea buried near the end of the book are so few that I feel bad for that brilliant idea. And I think that that's where I came up with this desire or this rule for myself to just put one idea per article and make sure that that's out in the world um, so that each idea gets a spotlight. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder, so um, these days I've... Uh, I've made a few a few videos on YouTube where I'm uh, uh, talking to people about how how to build an audience, for example, online. Um, and the thing that I've I've been saying, as as everyone does, is just put stuff out publicly and and and, mm -hmm. and put it out for free. Um, but I've 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 had a few people saying that, oh, what if, for example, you want to release a course further down the line, and someone is plagiarizing your stuff? Like, as as someone who puts a lot of stuff out into the world, and you know, you're recommending we release sort of chapters of this book as we go along. How how do you think about this? 
uh, this this fear that some people might have that uh, people might I don't know pirate your stuff essentially. Um, there's always an excuse to not do things, right? Like I'd I, I'd love to travel around Asia, but you know the what if I get diarrhea? What if I get lost? What if you know it's like everybody's got the what if this, what if that's that they use it some rationalized excuse for not doing something. Um, but I think you just have to have a certain confidence that not just confidence, but you can actually look at so, so, so many public examples where authors have shared the fact that releasing their book for free, even, even as a complete book actually boosted sales, Mm. releasing individual articles from the book, I think boosts attention and sales. Even the way that I think of my books these days, at least, you know, my next three books is that the contents are all on my site for free, but you'll have to click 90 different times to read 90 different articles, or you can spend $7 and lay down on the couch and read it. So I'm just confident that most people are probably going to spend the $7 to lay down on the couch and read it in one go instead of clicking 90 times, because I know that that's what I would want too. I've bought some books by Seth Godin, um, including one of my favorite books by him called Small is the New Big where it really was just a compilation of articles from his site. And yes, I could have read it all for free with 130 clicks, but I'd rather just spend a few dollars and read it. You know, it's not a it's not a $200 thing. Now, if somebody's talking about a course, if you're hoping to sell a $200 course someday, I could see there's arguments that you maybe you shouldn't put the entire contents of that course online for free if you're hoping to sell it for a high ticket. But, you know, books are pretty cheap. Excellent. And I think that brings us on nicely to, so you're working on three books at the moment. I wonder if you could kind of tell us a little bit about those. Uh, and and also I, I'm, I'm curious about your your setup for writing the books. Because like on this channel, I, I like to talk a lot about, you know, favorite apps and, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And I feel like I fall very much into shiny new toy syndrome, whereby when I, I decided that I was going to start writing, I spent hours and hours trying to figure out, do I use Notion or Rome or Evernote or Ulysses or Bear or Scrivener or all of these different things? And, and then I sort of realized, hang on, wait a minute, <laughs> this, is, this is not legit. So yeah. I wonder what, you, what your thoughts are about that. Um, I only use plain text. I use no apps. Um, I write everything in a Linux terminal, looking like an old 70s Unix terminal. Uh, using an old 70s text editor called Vi, which just I just type in plain text in the terminal, um, entirely offline. Oh, wait, I, I don't know if I said this already. But I think writing offline is my biggest productivity hack. My biggest productivity tip is that when you have said, it's time for me to write now, actually go over to your broadband modem and power it down. Cut off yourself from the world. Go to your phone. Hold down the two power buttons for the whole three seconds until it goes completely off. Turn it off. Make it so that you cannot go online. And then you write. And as you're writing, you'll have those moments where you think, ooh, I need to look that up. And we all just have this habit of constantly thinking we need to research something. We need to look something up. Like, yes, I'm writing, but, oh, yeah, what year was that that, you know, the Titanic sank? Let me go look that up but now you've fallen down a rabbit hole and now you're not writing. So I find instead to stay offline and when you think you need to look something up, just add it to a to-do list somewhere else, a a separate file called research and look up those things later when you're back online. What's funny is how many of them just disappear. 
you know, you didn't actually need to research that. You can get to the point you were trying to make without finding the year that the Titanic sank um, or whatever it is. Or if you really, really need it later, you can look it up later when you're online. So, yeah, my biggest tip, go offline. As for the apps, I personally see apps as the enemy. Um, I'm using this old text editor from the 70s, like I said, and it works. And I type my words into a terminal and it saves them as plain text. And that's all I need. Whenever somebody says, you need this app, you need to organize your thoughts with this. No, you don't. People wrote with typewriters and pieces of paper fed into typewriters for a hundred years. Before that, they used a, a pen and a stack of paper for hundreds of years. Um, just the fact that you have a word processor that can cut a paragraph and move it somewhere else is amazing. Uh, and any plain text editor does that. What I like about not using apps too is I really like to think super long-term and equipment agnostic. Mm. Like 20 years, I was a, 20 years ago, I was a Mac guy. 15 years ago, I was a Windows guy for a little bit. 10 years ago, I switched to Linux. Six years ago, I switched to OpenBSD. I used to use Android for a few years. And just last year, I switched to Apple for the fun of it. I might go back to Android. I like the fact that I've been editing my plain text files on all of those platforms. I'm not tied to any piece of overpriced hardware. I can switch at any time. Even new, new things that haven't been even invented yet. New technology will come out and they will read plain text files because everything does. I'm not sure that they're all going to read Scrivener files or whatever, you know. So I, I see apps and that desire to find apps as the enemy of productivity. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a lesson that I definitely need to uh, take more to heart. Uh, and I find that kind of these days, I, I've i been getting all sorts of emails. Um, th this morning, I had one from someone asking, hey, do you have the uh, MX Master 1 or do you have the Series 2 or do you have the Series 3? I'm looking for a mouse. And I, I was kind of thinking that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've got the Series 1, but it really doesn't matter. It's 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 yeah. a mouse. It kind of does the job of a mouse. Um, yeah. Wait, before we leave this point, it's interesting. I heard an interview with Seth Godin. Sorry, his name's come up like three times in a few minutes. Um, somebody asked him, like, what tools do you use to write? And he goes, like, no, I'm not going to answer that. He said, because here's why. It's You're going to look for some excuse to buy something, thinking that because I use this, maybe you should use that. No, stop it. Just use whatever you have. It doesn't matter what you use. Don't blame the tools. Um, also in a book called, uh, I forget what book it was called, um, but there was a book that uh, it said that real professionals don't hide behind their tools. He said, show me somebody with the fanciest, newest, top of the line computer using that to make their art, and I'll show you a procrastinator. He said the real professionals are just using whatever's around. It doesn't matter. They've got something inside them that needs to come out. It'll come out using whatever's here. Um, it's the amateurs that try to nerd out about their tools. Uh, and they kind of, kind of like the people that when you see them cycling and they're and like the fanciest titanium bike and they're all covered in this latex with the thing and, and all this accoutrement. It's, it's not necessary. Some people just really like to uh nerd out on things and get into it as like a hobby fascination but that's it's all a distraction from really doing the work uh, sorry you're hearing a common theme here i just think all of these <laughs> things are they're obstacles 
they're distractions. Uh, the internet, the internet itself. I shut off the internet. I, I try to eliminate all distractions, all obstacles, all of this nonsense that's not necessary, and always think in terms of like the minimum necessary thing to just do my work and then shut up my brain that thinks it uh, needs to find something new. Yeah, um, my favorite uh, kind of line uh, on on this theme is I think uh, I heard that Stephen King was once asked in a Q and A. Uh, which pen do you use to write with? <laughs> and, and he went exactly. on a big rant about how like, about it's not about the pen. <laughs> exactly. Perfect example. Yeah. Um, so you're working on th on three books at the moment. I wonder, can you give us any sort of sneak peek about what what they're about and how we might kind of... Uh, have, you, have you got like a mailing list or something that we can join if you want to... <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's fine. I, didn't, I wasn't planning on talking about them. They're not, uh, they're not out yet. But yeah, it goes like this. Um, Two years ago, I finished writing a book for musicians called Your Music and People, uh, Creative and Considerate Fame. But what I love is that my non-musician friends that have read the advanced copy say that they think it's a great book about kind of marketing and communicating in general. So it's written to musicians, but kind of like when I was a musician, I read a, a brilliant book called The Inner Game of Tennis that was just about... Um, your performing self versus your over analytical self. And even though it was about tennis, you could apply its lessons to whatever you're doing, in my case, music. So now I've written a book about music, which people can read metaphorically about um, creative and considerate fame in whatever you do. So then my second book is called Hell Yeah or No, which is just a collection of my best 80 something articles from the past 10 years which I found had a common thread around the subject of what's worth doing. So that's why the hell yeah or no subject and uh, or title and the what's worth doing subtitle. So those two books are done and I was giving a sheepish look because like they were supposed to be on sale two months ago, but I'm still like tweaking my store where I'm selling them because I'm building my own store because I'm a nerd like that. Um, so any old day now, those two books will be ready. So yes, you can go to simmers.org and get on my email list, which is just a private list that I don't spam or anything. And I will tell you when they're ready. And uh, then my third book is called How to Live. Um, and that is the one that I'm still writing right now. And I'm so damn excited about. It is, um, um, how do I, I don't know. Do I need to describe that? Maybe not, no. Um, it's, it's looking at, uh, 27 radically different one-sided arguments on how to live and one succinct conclusion. Oh, that's, that's all I'll say for now. That sounds very intriguing. Um, it's so exciting to write. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, it's like, it's one of those things like while I'm writing this, I'm like, you know, in the solitude of my writing room, just shrieking with excitement sometimes because it's so much fun to write and I can't wait to finish it. No, I can, I can imagine. I can't, I can't wait to read it. Uh, the, the thing that kind of fascinates me about the way that you're, you're approaching these books is, is the fact that you're like coding and building your own, your own store. And that, that's <laughs> like, a, the, the, there was like a bit, a, a bit from this book that, that really resonated with me. It was about how, uh, I think I think the line was that if you sign up to run a marathon, you don't want to get a taxi to take you to the exit. Um, and I think that sort of thinking is probably in action here with you building your own store. Yeah. Um, 
I met a tailor in London who not only makes clothes for other people, but he makes all of his own clothes too. And it's funny because when I met him, he was just wearing what looked to be a normal polo kind of shirt. And as he was talking, he said, he said, you know, look at this shirt here. He said, I made this one because most polo shirts don't have this kind of color. I wanted this kind of color, but with a polo kind of, so that's why I made this shirt. I was like, wow, this dude even makes his own shirts. Like everything he wears, he made it. And is that efficient? No, but this is what he loves to do. And there's more to life than efficiency. Sometimes you do things just because you love doing them. And I'm just very uh, process driven. I do things for the doing, not for the goal. There have been many projects that I've finished 90 or 95% and then just shut it down because I finished the fun part and the actual launching didn't matter to me. So I sometimes just shut things down before finishing them. But um, but no, I will release these books. But yes, I've thoroughly enjoyed um not just making a store, but also the book is translated into 25 languages. And I built a whole translation system to manage all the translators. Oh. And every sentence in the book is saved in a database on its own sentences. So now I can look up any English sentence I wrote and see that sentence in 27 languages, which really helped when I had to make an edit to the book and I had to cut out a paragraph. If my system wasn't like that, it would have been really hard to find a find that paragraph in Arabic and that paragraph in Chinese to cut out. But because it was mapped per sentence, uh, it was easy to do. Uh, it's going to be fun for learning languages later when I'm learning Portuguese or Mandarin or whatever to use my own sentences for language learning. Um, but yeah, I had something like 165 different translators kind of crowdsourced and working on this and uh, 55 editors and uh, 100 reviewers. And I built the whole system to manage the translation of the books. And that was fun. And so now I'm putting the finishing touches on the store and what's fun with that is I get to do some things that you can't do at Amazon, for example, um, custom dedications. So if you buy the book from me, you ask me how you'd like to dedicate it, you know, um, to the coolest guy I ever met, Ali. <laughs> and that'll be the first page of the ebook, you know, to the coolest guy I ever met, Ali, uh, or whatever you ask me to put in as a custom dedication. And then I got so excited realizing, wait a second, I can do that with the audiobook. I can make it so if you buy the audiobook from me yeah. and request a custom dedication, I just turn this mic on, say uh, for three seconds, like, you know, hit record to the coolest guy I ever met, Ollie. Send. Upload it to my server. It merges it with the master wave file of the audio, compresses it into an MP3, and now you download it. And the intro to your audiobook is my custom dedication. And that stuff excites me so much more than just putting it on Amazon like every other person does. You know, I really like this punky kind of do it yourself we don't need the man kind of ethic so that's what i'm doing yeah I, and I, I think you were saying in, in in another interview that this is it's sort of like the era of the internet that you grew up in where it was very much about sort of individual sort of creators before creator was even a word um, kind of <laughs> putting stuff together sticking it to the man uh, man as it were yeah, it was specifically in music, like in 1994-95 when I first got online, the independent, actually no, sorry, it was more like 98-99 when MP3s became a thing. 94-95 was still exciting because the internet was so new, it didn't even have graphics at first, it was just text, but that was just exciting in itself, that you were connecting with people around the world. Um, but then when MP3s really became a thing in 1998-99, that was super exciting because then every musician went, oh, my God, I don't need to sign my life away to EMI 
or Warner Brothers or whatever, um, I can just distribute my MP3s directly to my fans or just use the internet to sell my CDs directly and mail it to them. Like, I don't need a record label. I don't need a distributor. We don't need record stores. I don't need a publisher. It's like, wow, I don't need to sell my soul anymore. This is amazing. Self-distribution. It was like a huge revolution. And I was so happy to be right in the middle of all that scene. It was just like this um, renaissance, this blossoming of, of entrepreneurial spirit. And everybody was doing everything themselves. And it was so cool. And then, yeah, like 2007, Facebook started to get more popular. Things started to get more centralized. Um, and it kind of started to feel corporate and icky to me. So, yeah, I don't care if what I do is unpopular. Uh, it really makes me happy to do things myself with this kind of do-it-yourself ethic. Yeah. And, like, again, so it it's going to sound a bit weird, but, like, it's it seems like with a lot of the things you say, I think, oh, yeah, that... I, I I came across a variation of that idea in the book, and one of the ones that just came to mind is is this other quote that I, I think about a lot, which I think it goes that uh, the only point of doing anything is to make make you happy. Therefore, just do what makes you happy. Yeah, I mean, yes, profit's important in a way, but even profit—the reason you want profit is to be happy, right? So you, when you do what makes you happiest, it it puts fuel in your tank. You know, it it just gives you that go power. It makes you excited to get up and do things. If you're just trying to optimize everything for, you know, maximum analytical blah, blah, blah returns because somebody tells you this is what you should be doing. Um, yes, it may be optimized, but it can be depressing. And you find that you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. You're not excited about what you're doing. So I just think whatever excites you the most is what you should probably be doing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like, so often I get I get asked a lot, a lot of questions about kind of uh, from, from students struggling with productivity or like, you know, how do I maintain the motivation to do the thing? And uh, they would see kind of the stuff that I'm doing on the internet because I'm a, I'm a doctor by day and I do this YouTube stuff in the evenings and they say like, how, how, do, you, how do you have time for all, all of this stuff? And I always kind of find it quite, quite hard to answer because in general, I don't really ever do something that I don't want to do. I just kind of right. like in, in every moment, I'm kind of doing what I most want to be doing at the time. And, right. and so I don't know, it's, 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 it's a difficult thing to be able to kind of answer that. How do you force yourself to do something that you actively don't want to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, sometimes we have to, hmm. sometimes you have to push yourself through doing something you don't want to do. And as for, I don't know what you do. I just, I literally will yell, I'll just yell at nobody. I'll yell at nothing. I'm like, nah, don't want to do this. I'll kick the floor and I'm like, all right, I'll get some caffeine. I'm like, Bleh. and then I'll just do it. And you know, it's like, I don't feel like doing this, but it needs to be done. Here we go. But those, you know, that's like a few minutes per week or maybe a few hours per week tops. And usually the, uh, if we can personify the muse, as inspiration, usually she'll come to meet you halfway, you know, like when you sit down to do something, even if you don't want to do it, it's just that initial thing, like jumping into a cold pool. Once you're in the pool, it's usually all right. You know, it's just cold for the first 10 seconds. Once you're in it, it's like, okay, this is, this is actually all right. But damn, that first 10 seconds really sucked, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, the inspiration meets me halfway and then yeah, I don't spend hours cursing and yelling. It's just it's just those <laughs> official minutes when I have to get started. Yeah. Okay. 
And so kind of a, f a final point on the writing thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So I think there was a post on your blog, maybe maybe a year or two ago, where you said something that I, th I thought I disagreed with at the time, which is that you said that you'd avoid quoting from other people. And I know that almost any time, like if I'm doing an interview or if someone's, even in real life, often I find myself being like, oh, you know, there's this guy called Derek Sivers and he's got this thing about how, you know, or whatever. Or, you know, I would quote from Seth Godin or Tim Ferriss or Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh, I've, I've got this kind of long list of sort of uh, mentors, lots of whom don't know I exist, who I quote from regularly. And I've always been a bit like, oh, does, does the person on the receiving end really care that I'm quoting? But then I sort of feel that, well, I guess I sh probably should because then I can attribute the idea. I, how, how do you think about that, that sort of stuff? Yeah. Okay, so first, I did the exact same thing to a fault. And I would hear myself telling friends you know, in this book called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, which, you know, which Kay and I read it in 1997. It's a brilliant book about, you know, he's a Harvard psychologist. And I would like go this blah, 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 bibliography. <laughs> bibliography, that's a fun word to say. Um, and then after my long bibliography, I would say the sentence that I was trying to say. And after I heard myself do that enough times, I thought, I should just say that sentence, shouldn't I? Um... The idea is not to hide the source, but just not to force it on someone that didn't ask for it. So I think of the metaphor of eating at a restaurant. Imagine if it was the norm that every time you went to a restaurant and you ordered a meal, it would come out to you and the chef would come out and say, okay, what you're eating here, we got the lettuce, from the Wilson's farm, which is about 30 miles down that way. Now we picked the lettuce and it came to us on a truck that was uh, run by the Miller Shipping Company. Now these parsnips came from over here. Uh, this, now, now we brought the parsnips here to our kitchen and back here and back, uh, a man named Jeff is the one that chopped them up. And then we can even, the chicken came from this farm. You know, the chicken's name was Tracy and now she's dead. And uh, you know, um, you just be kind of going, Okay, can I just eat now? I just I just came for this meal. I didn't need the whole history of where every ingredient came from. Mm. If I want to know, I'll ask you. But if I don't ask, you don't need to tell me the ingredients and the source of every ingredient in my meal. So I feel that um, metaphor applies with the ideas and the stuff we're sharing. Okay, and uh, sort of if you're if you're writing, does that I, how how do you do it in the form of kind of writing a book? Do you kind of quote from other? Because I noticed you, you haven't got many quotes in here at all. Um, yeah. So how how do you think about it in the context of a book, for example? Um, so this third book that I'm writing right now called How to Live, mm -hmm. if I was to attribute every sentence to its source, the page would just be littered with sources. So instead... Um, with each idea that I'm tempted to quote from somebody, I actually go through a really deliberate process of adopting it. And again, I like this metaphor of adoption that whether you think of it as adopting a child or an animal or whatever you want to use, like I'm going, I'm going to adopt this idea and now it's mine. Um, I know that it originally came from somewhere else, but I'm going to fully embrace it as my own now. 
And I'm not using it word for word. And in fact, I'm going to alter it a little bit because I felt that Oscar Wilde said it good. But I think I can say it a little better or mix it to my point a little better. And sometimes I do get ideas from books that are a little long-winded and have a flowery sentence structure I don't like. And I don't want to quote that exactly. But I like the seed of that idea. And in fact, I'm going to mix it with this other idea over here. And now the combination is my unique thing. And, And in fact, I've put some more thought into it. And so, yes, if anybody wants to know the source, like the restaurant example, I'll be happy to tell you the source if you want to know, but I'm not going to force it on anybody. So no, um, I think I'm taking this as my my new stance that in by default, I won't quote others unless you really ask me like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. Where did you think of that? And I'll say, glad you asked. It's from the moment Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, who is a Harvard psychology professor. Now I'll tell you, because I know where everything came from. Musicians are the same way. Um, Every idea, I mean, every melody, every note, every lyric, musicians usually got it from somewhere. They heard this Joni Mitchell and they mixed it with this, you know, Beck song and this, that, and then they mix it up and it comes out as their own thing, but they know what their sources are. But the combination comes out sounding unique. But if you really ask them to dissect, where did you come up with this? They'll tell you. But yeah, you don't need to bother people with that if they don't ask. Yeah. And I think that that kind of takes us nicely on to um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is music. So you've been a professional musician for much of your kind of early life. I don't know if you would still identify as, as a musician. I guess you're identifying more as a writer these days or as yeah. so far up as... Until a year, yeah. yeah, up until a year ago, I still thought of myself as a musician. A year ago, I uh, had a funeral for it. Oh, okay. Why, 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 why was that? <laughs> um, I was torn. Uh, every single day, I was torn between writing and making music. My instruments were sitting in front of me, and every day I was choosing to write and not to make music, and every day I was feeling bad about it until I finally just kind of had a, uh... actually, it's funny. I, I, I had a moment where it was more like sitting down and deciding to get serious about my music. Like, you know, kind of like you with a thousand words, like I gotta do this thing. I gotta put in an hour every night to making music. And then my very first thought when I thought that was like, but that's time I could be writing. And then it's like, man, listen to yourself. Like, if you don't want to make music so much, why are you forcing this thing? And it's like, because it's my identity. I'm a musician. And so instead I thought, what would happen if I gave away all my instruments to a good friend of mine here in Oxford that's a professional musician? And my first thought was like, that would be a huge relief. And so I just tried it. First, I just called him to ask what he would think. I was just like, hey, Jeff, um, would you like my two guitars and my synths and my speakers? And he's like, dude, are you serious? You're talking about the the native instruments, complete control SED8? You're going to give it to me? I was just about to buy one of those. Oh my God, that would be amazing. And so I said, all right. That answers it. It's yours. And uh, whereas I wasn't using it, he's using it every single day and loves it. It changed his life. And so, yeah, um, that was just yeah six months ago. So that felt pretty amazing. But it definitely meant a little mini funeral for that um, identity of mine. Ah, okay. So so that's really interesting. And the, this is kind of going off on a tangent from from music. But this is kind of exactly how I've been feeling about being a doctor. Like, <laughs> really? Yeah, genuinely. Like it's. Wow. It's it's such a big part of my identity, and it's also very much tied up now in my, I suppose my quote online brand, uh, that hey I'm I'm a doctor who does this kind of other stuff on the side. Yeah. But now kind of I've 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 been a doctor for the last two years, and I'm approaching so for, from from August there's a very natural career kind of break where 
a lot of people will take some time out of medicine, maybe travel the world for a bit, and then apply to a sort of further training program in whatever specialty they want. And so what I've been thinking is, do like, is, is being a doctor really what, what I want to do long term? Or am I just kind of tied to the identity of it? And I just wow. really haven't found a way to think about it, especially because I'm 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 very early in the journey at the moment. I've only been a doctor for the last two years, and right. and so at the moment I'm thinking, I guess it's it's very reasonable to take a break and see what happens. Like not not hold the funeral just yet, but at least kind of give it a shot and see what life being unemployed is like, and just being a citizen of the internet, and then kind mm-hmm. of take it from there. I often ask myself when I'm confused about what I love doing. I reverse it and I ask myself, what do I hate not doing? Like if I were to remove everything, just give myself a big blank slate in life and just sit here and do nothing, what would I hate not doing the most? Like what thing, yeah, um, I find that a more useful question to ask. But wow, but that's tough because with something like music, you could say, okay, well, it's not going to be my primary thing, but I'll do, I'll, I'll dabble here and there. I don't know if you can really dabble i'll be a doctor as a hobby here and there when i feel like it stop in see if anybody needs any help i don't know i don't know how that would look yeah i think so that's uh, interestingly that that's sort of the the direction i'm actually i'm actually heading with it like um especially Mm -hmm. in in fields like uh anesthetics and emergency medicine and even general Mm -hmm. practice there's uh there's there's a a lot of people who now have what, what we call portfolio careers whereby they would do medicine maybe two days a week and then run their wine business on the side for two days a week, and then really? make some music on on Fridays. And I think wow. that is ultimately a kind of a good direction to sort of sort of aim for. Wow! Yeah, that's really cool. Um, but kind of coming coming back to the music thing, I think. So, I've I've been taking singing lessons for the past few months. The whole uh, lockdown thing has sort of put put, put a stop to mm-hmm. that. But I've been sort of dabbling in music since I was I was a teenager, and. I kind of want to get better at it and I've been kind of dabbling with music production. But I think like for me I'm I'm falling into the trap of uh, for like for example with with music theory. Like a few a few years ago I happened to have a piano in my university room and so I started figuring out chords and be like oh I can I can play an Ed Sheeran song, I can play the chords and I can sing along and and that works. But kind of through doing that and trying to pick up playing by ear I sort of I, f- I feel like I'm, I'm, I missed the boat on music theory and actually kind of knowing how to read music. So now that m- my reading of music is so basic that I get very frustrated learning, you know, the like, sort of grade one music pieces when I could be playing at a kind of higher level by ear. Uh, mm-hmm. What, uh, as a professional musician or ex-professional musician, how important is music theory when it comes to kind of producing and, and singing and, and, and things like that? Music theory is like language grammar. So... If you were to ask a, ask a linguist, they'll tell you that there are about 6,000 languages in the world, and only a few hundred of them have ever been written down. Most active languages, living languages in the world today, have never been written. And therefore, most languages today have never kind of codified their grammar and turned it into a book on grammar or certain lessons or rules on grammar. Mm-hmm. So, but most of these languages in the world People learn to speak them well anyway without getting analytical about like, well, is that a subjective term? You know, you know, you know is that the conditional verb? Um, they just listen and they speak. So I think it's the same thing with music theory, that music theory always comes 
later as kind of like the, the music version of linguists analyze what's been done, give names to things that people did um, intuitively so that they can turn it into a lesson and teach it to somebody else. But all of that is just later analysis and is absolutely not necessary to the playing or even the learning of music. So um, my best advice, you might be doing a version of this, is um, to make up your own, to analyze music, yes, to analyze your favorite music, but make up your own system for writing. Like the whole reason that we have the sheet music with the treble cliff and the five lines and the dots and the circles with the flags was to make a universal standard so that you could, uh, Mozart could write out his music and sheet music and hand it to a bunch of musicians that aren't going to be there with him, didn't have recording, and a bunch of people could play this thing that weren't in the room with him. But you're just, you're not going to be writing parts for cellists. Um, uh, you're just going to be doing this for yourself. So you can um, take your favorite song or each of your favorite songs and just make your own system for analyzing them. And maybe you just have some, maybe you do it in an app, maybe you do it on a piece of paper, maybe it doesn't matter what it is. You just kind of notice and pay attention to the organizing of instruments, the layering. Uh, sometimes I love listening to these arrangements where something comes in for eight bars and you think the song's going pretty well, and then something else comes in for the next eight bars and layers it. But then that thing at the beginning drops out, leaving only the second thing. And I'll enjoy writing this on a piece of paper just to kind of see it, um, see the way that instruments are dropping in and out of the arrangement and seeing how they build and then where they all drop down. Um, and then I'll imitate that in my own productions. I'll kind of use, I'll kind of abstract that lesson and for a different song, not imitating the original, but in my own song, I'll use some of these ideas for the arrangement. Um, yeah, you can just analyze the hell out of things without needing to do any of the standard music treble clef note reading kind of notation and definitely without um music theory um i think just whenever you hear something you like a certain chord you go ooh, ooh, what is that yeah then you just stop and you poke around until you find that chord you go ah i don't even know sometimes there are things that we don't even really know how to analyze it the um you know, I, I'm very, very, very versed in music theory. I went to Berkeley School of Music. I got a degree, a bachelor's degree in music. And yet, when I hear the song um, Lithium by Nirvana, I'm so happy because today I found my friends. They're in my head. It's, it's like D, D, F sharp major, E, D, B, 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 C, C, A, C. It makes no sense. I have no idea what the hell he's doing. There, I don't know what kind of analysis you would put into this chord progression, but damn, it sounds so cool. And I don't know whether to call that the flat six or a key change or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It sounds awesome. Um, yeah, all of this music theory is just a way to kind of turn things into workbooks to teach students, but you don't need that. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I was watching an, an, uh, an interview with John Mayer uh, a few days mm -hmm. ago, and he said something almost identical. He, I, think, I think he also went to Berkeley School yeah, music. Yeah. And he was saying that like, when you're listening to a song or, for example, learning how to play a song on the guitar, uh, so don't just kind of memorize the sort of the the fingering, you know, the, the, the position of your fingers. Think about what that chord is and why they chose it. And, and then think about how like, other ways you can make that chord. And he was saying that 
eventually, if you do that enough, you develop your own music theory and you don't have to kind of read a book about it. Like what even nice. is the diatonic scale, like all, all this kind of stuff. And he was saying that he yeah. didn't really care about music theory despite having gone to Berkeley. <laughs> so I thought, cool. Was, yeah. Yeah, that is a good example, especially on guitar. I know, I guess the piano too, like this idea of like, this is a C chord, but so is that third on top. And so is that with the pinky and so is this. And yeah, it is good to do that and then go through chord progressions that you might have learned down at the bottom of the deck, like any uh, beginner on acoustic guitar. Yeah, now to play those up higher on the neck with the same chord progressions. Yeah, that can be a fun example. And then it also brings out different notes in the melody. Next thing you know, you've written your own song. Um, that's what I love. Like all, there were some interviews with the Rolling Stones when they first got famous where uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger said that that they never even set out to write original songs. They would just play songs by their heroes. And then just as they'd be jamming and playing, their own song would kind of tumble out. Like something would just tumble out of the mix that was somewhat unique that, that just happened accidentally almost. And that's how they would write songs, um, just by imitating their heroes and their own thing tumbles out. I think that's a, a fine way to look at it. Yeah. And I think like one of the things that I love about about kind of diving into into music like this is that I think there are a lot of analogies to to sort of other aspects of life when it comes to originality. Mm. And this is something that I used to struggle with a lot when when making YouTube videos and and when writing blog posts and things that oh you know I'm I feel like I'm not really saying anything that's original, but I I love how in music like. An, an original song feels like it's sort of just a a, a remix from 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 different sources and 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 that's yeah yeah. In fact, the biggest pop songs of all time sound almost like nursery rhymes. They're so like do re mi simple. And you guys might have heard the story. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm always aware of the audience. <laughs> I was like, you guys, nobody, whoever's out there listening. Um, that when Paul McCartney came up with the melody for the song yesterday, he thought, this is too good. Somebody must have written this. Like, this can't be original. And he went around singing it to everybody he could, just like, you know, hey, John, yesterday, he's like, what song is this? Everybody went, I don't know it. He kept asking, he asked its producer, he asked musicologists. Finally, somebody said, I don't know it. And he said, I think I wrote this. But it didn't even feel original to him. It felt like he had heard it from somewhere, but no, he accidentally wrote yesterday. It was called Ham and Eggs at first. Ham and Eggs, legs. And he came up with better lyrics later. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. Um, it, so it's, it seems like you're a pretty good singer. Uh, were you born that, <laughs> were you born oh, that yeah, way? Oh, yeah, you took the singing lesson. No. Yeah. Was this in my book? I think you know my book better than I do. <laughs> I think uh, th there was some reference to how you had singing lessons. So I was, I just, I just wanted to kind of hear what, what, what your story was uh -huh. with singing lessons and kind of what the process of improvement looked like. I don't know if this story was in the book. I think there was a reference to my voice teacher, but, um, but no, I was a horrible singer. At the age of like 14, 15, it was actually my guitar teacher. I was just like a heavy metal guitarist. And my guitar teacher at the time said, you're going to have to learn to be a singer. Because if you don't learn to sing, you're always going to be at the mercy of some asshole singer. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took that to heart and I was like, yeah, I think he's right. I, like I had no desire to be a singer at the time. But then I, after thinking about that, I was like, that's right. I don't, I don't want to be at the mercy of some singer. I'm going to have to do this myself. So I started singing and I was terrible. And dude, I took voice lessons 
every week or so, at least every month for 15 years. And every single night I would go into a piano room uh, by myself, a soundproof practice room. And I would go, I would sing my arpeggios, my scales. Um, Then I, I would do tone practice. So it's like, God, this is weird to do. Um, but you can pick a note, like, yeah. and then you go, Ooh. so you, you experiment with like your throat and opening your throat or tightening your throat or singing through your nose and getting different tones out of your voice. And um, which is still the thing I love about techno music. It's how they play with timbre, you know. Like that was all one note, but they're just bringing out the treble, rolling it back, cutting it off. And uh, you can do that with your voice to just pick a note and sing that note in as many different ways as possible. And it'll sound terrible. You can imitate your heroes, like go sing a somebody that doesn't sing like you. Mm. Um, well, first try to imitate your heroes, but then take somebody like, Stevie Wonder, try to sing a Stevie Wonder song like Stevie Wonder. Um, uh, Voice teachers will point out that singers like John Lennon sings through his nose and Paul McCartney sang through his throat. And that's like, anyway, uh, I nerded out on this for like 15 years, but although I loved doing it and I was determined to be a great singer, the whole time for 15 straight years, Everybody that would hear me sing would just kind of say, like, dude, you're just not a singer. I hope you find a real singer someday, you know, because you've got pretty good songs, but you're just not a singer. Um, and I was unfazed. I was like, I don't care. You know, this is what I love doing. And this, I'm going to do it. And sure enough, after 15 years of trying, about the age of 28, 29, um, my last few songs I ever recorded before I accidentally started CD Baby I really liked the vocals and I would listen to it for the first time feeling like that sounds good. I like this singer. And, um, and yeah, now when I hear myself sing now, I feel like, yeah, after 14, 15 years of trying, I finally got it. So yeah, most people, it doesn't take that long, but yeah, I think you've got a good voice to start with. I I think some of us, it's, you can hear certain people have a speaking voice that's, that's already pleasing to begin with. Whereas, you know, if somebody really talked like this to begin with, they might have a, a longer struggle in learning to be a good singer. They're going to have to undo all this before they, you know, if, if your speaking voice is good to begin with, you've got a head start. Oh, well, thank you. That's that's very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I've, I've I've been taking kind of singing lessons once a week ish for the last few months, kind of pre pre lockdown. And uh, for, for the past couple of years, I've been posting on my Instagram, uh, you, occasionally, like I'd get home from work and just bang out Hey Jude or something like that on the piano and, and sing along with it. And in general, you know, people are just really nice. And uh, this is one of the great things about the internet. Like everyone kind of thinks that, oh, if you stop putting stuff on the internet, you're going to get, you're going to be met with this open uh, sort of hostility towards you and right. people coming at you. But like, in general, people are just so nice and supportive. They're like, oh, you've got a great voice. Oh, you're a great singer. And, and that was always really nice. But then occasionally I'd get like a couple of people being like, hey, man, stick to productivity advice. You're not really a singer. And I would always be a bit like, like, I know, like, I know I shouldn't care, but I, I, I still kind of I feel very imposter syndrome when it comes to mm-hmm. musical singing, just because 
it's it's not a big part of my identity at the moment. And I was sort of thinking that, oh, well, I, I've been having lessons for the last six months and I don't feel I've improved. But it's, so it's, it's very reassuring to, to hear that you had them for like 15 years before you thought that you were pretty reasonable at it. I do two hours a night for 15 years. I was I was driven. And so, yeah, it can take a while. But yeah, I, I think you're doing the right thing by putting it out there. It also, it, it helps... Um, it helps to remember that this is just something that you enjoy doing for its own sake, that it's process driven, not just a goal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, uh, that kind of reminds me, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it, if, if it was you said this, but it's, it's this, this idea that occasionally goes around that you don't need to try and make a living from your hobbies because by, by trying to make a living from it, you're actually going further away from, the the art itself and much more towards the business mm -hmm. side of things which you might not necessarily want to do yeah most professional musicians i know only really spend one to three hours a day actually making music the rest of the time is just spent managing their career so i think it it's actually it's the happiest people i know are the ones who make a living doing something that pays well and then do their art whether it's painting or music or writing or whatever just for the love of it and not trying to uh, make good money doing it. That said, you have to take the art seriously to get the full um, enrichment of the happiness. You know, there's shallow happy and there's deep happy. And sometimes deep happy comes from doing the more difficult things. So it's taking your art seriously, even though you're only doing it at night. Um, yes, release it to the world. Yes, try to sell it. But you won't be depending on it for an income because you've got this other thing in the day that um, that pays your cost of living. And I think that balance is healthier. And like I said, the happiest people I know are the ones that have balanced those two things. Awesome. So we've talked about writing and, and we've talked about music a little bit. I wonder if we can shift gears and talk about making friends. <laughs> this is, this is, okay, now I gotta say something. Yeah. Uh, do you remember when we first connected and you said, "All right, hi, Derek, hi," and then I just kind of like sat here awkwardly for a second. We just kind of looked at each other for a few seconds of silence. It's because I was thinking of saying something, but then I was like, "I'll wait till see if we talk about this." That um, you and I met, I think, probably a year and a month ago. Does that sound yeah, about right? a year and a bit. Yeah, April last year. Um, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you right now. I would say I've said this to other people, too. You are the coolest person I've met in a long time. And the first uh, guy I've met in a long time where I thought, like, I really want to stay better friends with this guy. That was a really cool. Like, I didn't we were talking into the night in Cambridge and I didn't want to leave. I was like, that was a great conversation. It's like, he's really, really cool. And I almost never add anybody to my phone, even when I meet up with people. Like I, we train phone numbers, but I don't actually add them to my contacts. I actually like added you to contacts. I was like, we need to be real friends. Um, and yeah, I just, I liked you a lot. <laughs> I was like, it's a really, really cool guy. So um, I think it's kind of cool that when you emailed me about coming on your show, that you said you wanted to talk about friendship. Cause I was like, okay, not only do I have a lot to say about that, <laughs> But how appropriate that is you asking me. So yeah, that was the awkward silence at the beginning of the phone call. Oh wow. Well thank you. That's that's incredibly kind of you. Because when when we met, I like really enjoyed our conversation, but I was so worried that I would come across as 
kind of a fan because I was like <laughs> a huge fan of your work. And so I was really like, oh, you know, I really don't want this to become just like kind of like a podcast interview. Um, and I was sort of like th throughout a whole conversation, I was, I was having a lot of fun, but I was also like really overthinking that, oh, I don't know if he likes me. I really, I really want to be his friend. <laughs> that, and then at the end, when you said that, uh, that you, that you enjoy the conversation and that I should consider you a friend, I would like, that made me like so, so, so happy. And I was always like, oh, I'm not really sure if he was just being polite or if it was just like a, a, a but so I, that, that aside, the thing I wanted to kind of riff on with you is sort of what does, what does friendship kind of mean in your book? Because I know that you sort of sort of consider yourself a, a citizen of the internet rather than a citizen of any one kind of location. And where, how how does kind of making friends come into that? Um, well, first, we all know that the word friend is too vague. It should have many subdivisions. And I think the French language has many more divisions I read. But there are, I feel like a recent lesson I learned is that just because somebody is smart and a good conversationalist doesn't necessarily mean that you're good friends. I think that to me, like the the the, the real friends, if we can use that as the uh, the um, adjective to to separate the you know from acquaintances, mm -hmm. it's the number one thing to me is emotional safety. That I can have interesting conversationalists and good conversations with strangers. And I could meet a different stranger every day and have good conversations and kind of feel friendly with everybody. But there's this tight inner circle of people that you actually feel emotionally comfortable with, like that you could call when you're really down mm. and you need to be selfish and say like, you know, I just really need to talk. And you will know that you feel safe to do that, feel safe to be uh, not your best self. Um, that to me is like, I've been thinking a lot about that because I meet a lot of smart, interesting, cool people. And then it's always kind of um, sad or strange or something to notice then which ones don't turn into friends because it just stays at the interesting conversation level and doesn't get to the emotional safety level. Um, but that's, sorry, that's, that's one side of your question. But there's... Uh, I'd say almost all of my friends are people that have initially either reached out to me because they heard something I put out in the world, whether a podcast or read my article or book or something like that, and, and reached out to me because they found something I put into the world, or vice versa. A few of my best friends now are people that I reached out to them because I heard something they put out in the world either like a book that I read and I loved. And so I emailed the author and I just said, like, that's brilliant. And then we trade a few emails back and forth. Um, but either way, whoever reaches out to who first, there's always that stage where in this kind of arm's length distance emailing, you get the feeling like this is a really cool person. And so somebody has to suggest like taking it to the next level. Like yeah. let's, let's talk on the phone. Um, so that's my thing is I really like the phone. My friends are spread out around the world, kind of like my, my like my five best friends are practically on five different continents, definitely in five different countries. Um, and so the phone is crucial to me. So if somebody doesn't like the phone, then we're just not gonna be friends, you know? Um, I've met some people that were really cool. We, we stayed up into the night 
over drinks in a square talking but then I say like we should talk on the phone sometime and they go oh I don't I don't do the phone I'm like okay well then we're only going to be you know c-level friends not a-level friends or whatever you call it um but yeah somebody has to suggest taking it to the next level like let's talk on the phone or let's meet up um and um yeah, okay, I have so much more to say about this. Sorry, I think you might need to direct the the uh, topics a bit. Yeah. More to so, so on the, I think, I think that's a really interesting point that that someone someone has to suggest taking it to the next level, right? Because, I guess, from from all of us perspective, every of anyone listening, to this like we all we all know that feeling of slight anxiety that you get when when meeting someone new. Where you're like, I want to be your friend, but I don't know if you want to be my friend, and then like it. It requires some level of vulnerability to sort of put out the suggestion that, hey, sh- we, should we kind of meet up outside of work? Or do you want to kind of chat on the phone sometime? I, I kind of get the impression that you're okay with kind of, kind of taking that, uh, sort of exposing exposing yourself in that sense. Well, you have to, um, well, at least from my American point of view. I know it's not <laughs> I know the uh, classic British reservedness, uh, you know, uh, maybe nobody ever says that. Um, but yeah, there was. I mean, I'll, I'll tell a specific example. Actually, if you want, I'll tell a few quick, colorful examples. Oh yes, perfect. Um, uh, I shouldn't name people's names. Somebody like at mentioned me in a tweet, and I said that name sounds sounds familiar. And I went and clicked and found out it was the person who wrote one of my wood egg books. I had a publishing company like six years ago, and it was somebody that wrote one of my books. But now she's living in Oxford, England. I was like, I live in Oxford. This is like a month after I got here. And I said, and I, but she didn't used to live in Oxford. So I emailed and said, hey, uh, I'm the guy that hired you years ago to write this book. I live here in Oxford now. Are you really living in Oxford? And she said, yeah, oh my God, you live here? And I said, look, here's my local phone number. Let's meet up. And it turns out that she has kids the same age as my kid. And so we met up in a, in a playground to let the kids play. And I had low expectations. Uh, I didn't know anything about this person except that I hired her years ago to write a book. And um, but as soon as we met, it was just like, wow, you're really, really cool. Again, sorry, it's like when you and I met, it's like you're exceptionally cool. I like you more than I like most people. And just something about her right away. Um, and so we hung up for like an hour while our kids played in the playground, and then it was time to go. And I said, hey, I really like you. Um, you're a really cool person. She goes, oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. She goes, yeah, I, I, you know, I feel the same way. Oh my God. And she said, my husband and I, like, you know, we moved back here from Hong Kong only a year ago. We just don't generally meet anybody we like. And she said, I was having the same feeling about you. Like, you're a really cool person. I had no expectations. I said, yeah, same here. She goes, okay, I think we'll be friends. I said, yeah, we'll be friends. And uh, so, yeah, that's actually, her husband is the one that I gave all my musical instruments to. Um, so, uh, and then I guess if it was somebody else, I would tell the story about, you and I, that I was coming to Cambridge to speak at a conference. Did I, I reached out to you, didn't I? Yeah, so. I told you I'm in Cambridge. Yeah, so I think uh, around that time, I released a video called Three Books That Changed My Life, and, and your book was on the list. And someone I, tweeted, uh, sort of mentioning both you and me, saying that, hey, Derek, this guy's mentioned you in his video. Um, and then you replied to that tweet saying, hey, Ali, I'm going to be in Cambridge. Do you want to hang out? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> right. Yeah, thanks. For, I forgot, forgot about that. Um, okay, so here's a good one. Somebody sends me an email saying that she really likes my book reviews 
on my site and that it's changed her life. And, and she admires the fact that I put my email out there publicly because uh, she gets a lot of emails from strangers and she knows that if she were to receive an email like this, it would be weird too. And I looked at her email signature and she's like this famous Olympic athlete. Hmm. And then I looked at her work online. I was just like, oh my God, your work is amazing. And then I read her bio and stuff. I was like, you're a, you're amazing. And you're like saying, I, you're inspired by me. I said, and so with that case, I just emailed back and said, here's my phone number. We should talk. And she called me the next day and we talked for three hours that night and three hours the next night and three hours the next night. And it actually turned into like a full on romantic relationship for a year. Awesome. Um, and uh, it just started because she reached out. Um, and then, yeah, my, my, another good friend of mine wrote a book that I absolutely loved. And so I just emailed the author, like totally on a pedestal, like, Oh my God, I read your book. I absolutely loved it. And uh, he wrote back saying, Oh my God, I read your blog. How cool that you know my book. Wow. How did you, you know? And same thing. I just said, let's talk on the phone. And so we started talking and yeah, we talked for a few years before we finally met up in person when we like were in the same country someday. And in fact, I'd say two or three of my best friends now are people that we met randomly online like that, like just one of us encountering each other's work and have only talked on the phone for years. In fact, one of my top five best friends I've never seen in person and never even clicked the video button on our calls. It's just been an audio only friendship for like five years. Um, anyway, yeah, those are some tales, but it's, I, it's, I'm sorry, that was like really indulgent of me to go into those stories. But I think the point is that Yes, you should reach out to your heroes. Um, heroes is maybe too. Um, you should reach out to people that you feel a connection with online and introduce yourself and say hello because you probably have a lot in common. The reason that you were drawn to this person's work is because it really resonates with you. And that means you're probably this that person's kind of person too that you'd like to know um, or that that person would also like to know. So you just have to be careful not to put people up on a pedestal too much, because if when you meet in person, you are fawning as if they are something special and you are nothing, you know, that metaphorical putting somebody up on a pedestal, what you do by doing that is you put yourself below that person. And nobody wants to be friends with somebody down there. You want to be friends with somebody that you're seeing eye to eye with. So um, my advice for when you meet people that you look up to is to um, not do the fawning thing and just talk about anything else. Um, just talk about random surroundings and whatever. And that's where you'll actually connect more than the, oh my God, I love your book <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. It doesn't mean don't say I love your book. You can say I love your book because that's just kind of like, oh, cool. If you love my book, you're probably a pretty cool person. Yeah. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I've also tried not fawning when I was with people whose work I really admire. And because I don't fawn, then it became a real friendship with the emotional safety that I talk about where it's actually like, yeah, then it turns into a real friendship, which is always more emotion based than intellect or success based yeah yeah definitely so like i'm i'm curious what's your what's your like uh, and and this might sound a bit overthinking but like what's your 
process for like talking to people on the phone? Do you just kind of randomly ring them or do you do like text message back and forth? Do you schedule a calendly? Like how, how does it actually oh, work? Because I don't do this is... phone thing very much. Uh, occasionally I'll ring someone up in the car and they'll probably be busy or occasionally I'll get through to someone like, I think, oh, I should do this t- chatting on the phone thing, phone thing more often. It's quite nice. But like, <laughs> what's it... <laughs> What's it look like? <laughs> I have such a strong opinion on this. Okay. I think it's funny that we all have these phones where we use so many of the buttons, except that one that's in the shape of a phone. Nobody ever uses that button. <laughs> Everybody's scared of that green button with a picture of a phone on it. Um, uh, yeah, I think, okay, I'm a little weird like this, but you ask my opinion, you'll get my opinion. You don't need to text somebody to ask if they can talk because the sound of a ringing phone is the inquiry asking if somebody can talk. And if they can't talk, they hit decline. You don't need to make it a separate ask. Can you talk? Can you talk? Just call. Um, Granted, that's after you have some comfort. That's after you've probably met with somebody. Um, Yes, I I think it is maybe polite the first time to text first and say, are you free to talk? And then call. Um, but there's really no harm in just calling somebody. It's, it's just like getting a text. You can decline it. Um, but I'm so glad you asked this because I have a great little story. Oh. Um, and once again, should I, I won't name names. Um, a very famous Broadway musical writer is one of my best emotional friends. And I, I'm not saying that to name drop or try to impress, but but because the reason we met is I bumped into him at the TED conference and I went, oh my God, you're the guy that wrote these musicals. And he goes, uh-huh. And we just started talking. And then it turns out that he knew CD Baby and then we had a thing. And, uh, and we just had this great conversation for an hour. And I said, let's trade phone numbers. So he gives me his phone number. And for the next year, the next half year, I just had him kind of up on this pedestal, like, oh, he's very famous and very busy. Um, So I would do things like text, like, um, hey, are you free to talk next Thursday night? And I loved his reply. I think this is like by the second or third time I did that, he... I mean, second or third time I did that, and yes, then we would talk or whatever. But after like, I kept doing that, hey, are you free to talk next Thursday night thing? He finally said, Derek, I'm your friend. He said, call me at two in the afternoon or two in the morning. Wake me up in the middle of the night if you need to talk. Uh, like, I adore you. I would love to talk to you in the middle of the night if you need to talk to me. I'm your friend. Like, you're my friend. So don't never ask. Just call. He said, I adore you and would always love to hear from you. Just call. I thought, oh, that was really sweet. It was like the, one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. And what's funny is I said, okay, deal. And then once I said deal, he started calling me at three in the morning. <laughs> so what's funny is I would often like be asleep. I didn't used to turn off my phone every night and I'd be asleep. And then yeah, it's like three in the morning, pick up and it's like, hey man, can you talk? I need to talk. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, hold on, give me a minute. I'm going to get up. And then we'd have like a 90-minute conversation as he was like sad about something. And uh, But I thought that was really sweet that, you know, there's three in the morning. It's like, yeah, that's a real friend. Um, yeah. And we need that. People are too scared to bring people into their inner circle and 
Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this stuff. It is such a <laughs> to talk about that nobody talks about. We're talking productivity tips and all that, and nobody talks about friendship. Yeah, so um, me and my brother actually started this uh, weekly weekly podcast called uh, Not Overthinking, where we talk about things like friendship and happiness and how did we make friends in school versus how do we think about making friends now and why do we hate networking events and, and things mm. like that. And we were thinking that, oh, it would be love to have you on the podcast at some point to talk about <laughs> friends because I feel like you would have some some, some good views about it. And, we, yeah. and we, we, we kept on thinking, oh, you know, it'd be nice to do it in person. We should totally go up to Oxford. Um, <laughs> and then lockdown happened and we were like, oh, damn. We're gonna... <laughs> so <laughs> there's been all these kind of things in the pipeline where like we both really want to talk to you about about making friends. But like, so this, the story that you tell about this guy is, is really interesting because I think, I, I think it speaks to an experience that lots of us have where we feel one way about something and we just assume that other people feel a different way about it. Like for mm -hmm. example, if any of my friends were to just call me, I would be delighted to hear from them pretty much at any time. And if I'm in the middle of something like, you know, doing a live stream or filming a video, then, then I'll decline the call and be like, hey, you know, what's up? But I would just love to hear from them at any moment of the day. Whereas even with friends that I've known since kind of primary school, uh, I would feel bad about being the one to call them because I would just sort of think, oh, you know, this person's busy, they're doing stuff. Why do they want to hear from me? <laughs> and I, I suspect that a lot of them would be like, oh, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd happy to take a call from you. Yeah. But yeah. It's one of those kind of asymmetries where we, like, for example, even though, for example, you gave me your number and said, "Hey, call me. We should we, we should hang out." In in my head, it was like, "Oh, you know, he he can't really mean that. He must be such a busy guy. You know, he's got this kid. He's writing his books. He's doing his stuff. You know, what's the kind of little old me gonna?" <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just all very all very strange. Yeah, um, yeah, we all do that. I mean, that, I think that's why I wanted to tell you that story and, and why I included the detail that my friend was this like famous Broadway musical composer because it's like. Yeah, I was intimidated and just felt that he's totally swamped. And you know what? Everybody's busy, but everybody makes time for the people that they love talking with, you know, because that's it's rejuvenating to talk to people you adore. Um, and you always have time for rejuvenation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was another thing that you you mentioned at one point, which is uh, weird like me uh what does what does that phrase mean um i think a lot about kindreds um the writer that's here in oxford that wrote a book for me when i told you that we like we almost instantly went like i really like you i really like you too we had this really specifically weird thing in common where she said why did you leave america and i said have you heard the phrase burning the ships? And she goes, oh my God, I was just researching the phrase burning the ships this morning. How weird that you're talking about that. She said, why do you mention it? I said, well, when I left America, I, I wanted to burn the ships behind me. You know, I, I said, do you know the reference of the quarter? She goes, yeah, I know the reference. Of like, most, do you know the story about burning the ships? No, I don't. What's the story? Of oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so we all know the saying burning bridges. We think about that burning bridges with friendships. Uh, the phrase burning the ships is when you make a drastic move to prevent yourself from retreat. And it's a reference to some Spanish conquistador or something that went off into um, South America and had maybe 100 men on his ships. And But when they arrived, there were like 10,000 Aztecs waiting to kill them. And they said, we must not retreat from this. He said, 
send one of the men to burn the ships to show the soldiers we have to push forward we cannot retreat to the homeland um so yeah somebody went and burned the ships so they cannot retreat and they won the battle uh, whether that was for better or worse historically, you know, <laughs> that's a separate story. But yeah, so the phrase burning the ships means to to dramatically cut off your options of okay. retreat. And so that's what I did when leaving America um, 10 years ago. And she had just been having a discussion with her husband that morning about burning the ships and because they had left Hong Kong. And, and um, so it's like we instantly had this weird thing in common. And she's like, all my friends think I'm really weird for leaving Hong Kong. I was like, all my friends think I'm really weird for leaving America. And it was like, it's like, wow, you, so you get why I did it. And we both had this thing of like, okay, you get this weird thing about me. And so weird like me to me means like, it's a relief to know that there's this thing about yourself that other people find weird that you might have to explain to some stranger and feel in this defensive um, struggle to explain yourself. Mm. But when you meet somebody who's weird like you, it's like, ah, what a relief. I don't have to explain myself to you. You get it. So that's just kind of sweet when you meet somebody, um, yeah, who has, you know that the the Olympic athlete that I mentioned earlier mm. that we kind of like fell in love after a couple phone calls. Um, She's just like a absolutely like monomaniacal driven, ambitious uh, person like me. And I've always been so weird that my friends are like, dude, relax, just chill, get a nice life balance, work life balance. I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh. And it's like, I met her, it's like, she got that thing. And in fact, she took it even further than me. I was like, oh, it was such a relief to meet somebody else. It, like I said something once about hanging out and she goes, hang out, do you mean like, People who sit on couches? No, I do not do this. I do not sit on couches. Life is too short. <laughs> I was like, yes, you're so cool. I love this. Somebody who gets it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, the, the people who have kindred interests are weird like you. Yeah. Now I've definitely found that found that as well. And I think that w one of the things that I like most about kind of dabbling in other sort of areas, like when I started dabbling in music and started dabbling in like tech stuff and then the YouTube thing, and is that you then have this sort of shared language with other people who are doing the thing. And so now, you, you know, almost any time I meet someone who is, who is a YouTuber or someone who is into music or someone who's into tech of some description, we've got that sort of shared experience as like a thread that's tying us together. And yeah. one thing that my brother and I often talk about is that, for example, in, in general, like we both find that when it comes to making friends, we are more instantly comfortable around other uh, so, uh, around other ethnic minorities. And mm -hmm. even though it's kind of not a big deal and we don't experience that much sort of, you know, outward racism and stuff, it's just that the experience of being an ethnic minority in the UK does in a way ha sort of give you some similarities and some sh shared experiences with other people who are ethnic minorities equally. You know, I I would always find find that in at at university, whenever I'd meet sort of I was I was part of the Islamic society. Whenever I'd I'd meet someone from the Christian Union, we just get on really well because you know. Right, we talked just, about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got this kind of like shared, generally religious sort of conservatism, even though they're different religions. But just that that kind of vibe, sort of has this sort of kindred spirits sort of feeling. Yeah. 
yeah, that's really cool. That's a good example. Um, so on the on the friends theme as well. So uh, you, uh, my understanding is that you lived in Singapore for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I read on your on your blog, uh, which, which which I do a lot, is that you sort of didn't really care much about sort of and and this is going to sound bad, but in like, in a non bad way, uh, you didn't really care about much about engaging with the local community in Singapore, and you were more interested in sort of meeting people online. Like what? Oh, what is wait, it? no, sorry, it was it was reverse. Singapore is where I did get deeply involved and was oh, okay. deeply interested in the people. Um, Singapore and New Zealand are kind of opposite to me. I love both countries, but for opposite reasons. Um, in Singapore, I deeply connected with the people. I just, the whole reason I love Singapore is for the people. You know, the land itself is just almost a non-issue. It's the people. And then I went to New Zealand and I just fell in love with the land. I've never been so in love with a place before and felt so connected to a place. But it was probably also because it was just an antisocial time in my life because I just had a baby and I just wanted to be a very present full-time father that I was totally antisocial and not part of the local community in New Zealand. So in New Zealand, people would ask me to meet up and I'd say no. In Singapore, everybody who wanted to meet up, I'd say yes. I met up with like 500 people one-on-one um, in Singapore, but in New Zealand, you know, three <laughs> in okay. six years. So, um, yeah, anyway, but yeah, that's, I'm sorry, I, I accidentally interrupted. I felt like I had to, you know, set the record straight that no, I was deeply interested in the people of Singapore. Oh, okay. No, cool. So th- that was what I wanted to kind of ask ask more about because um, for, for the last few years, I've, I've had this kind of thing buried in the uh, About Me page on my website saying that, hey, if you, if you happen to be roaming around Cambridge, uh, drop me a message and I'll buy you a coffee. And mm-hmm. through that, over the last two years, kind of pre-lockdown, I've met up with at least 30 or 40 people, just like after work on random days. Mm-hmm. And it's just been really fun. And people often see that as like kind of weird. They're like, why would you meet up with random strangers on the internet? And I sort of think, well, why wouldn't you meet up with random strangers on the internet? Right. And like even sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd meet up for a coffee, have a great chat. I'd invite them over to my place. We'll get a takeaway. There was one... There was one time there was a, a student who was visiting the UK from America and we just end up, we, we were chatting until like midnight and he missed the final train back to London. So he just kind of slept on my airbed and kind of went, went home the following morning. And, and my mom was like, oh. what the hell? You know, does, this guy could have been, a, could have been anyone. <laughs> and I was sort of like, well, you know, he, he, he went through the effort of finding this niche page on my website and emailing me. Right. Like, how, how bad can he really be? <laughs> and you hit the key point. It's not like you're, it's it's not like, oh, you like Reddit? I like Reddit. Let's meet up. It's like, that's too broad. Um, but yeah, this is somebody who found your site and went to the about page. So I think that shapes a lot of this conversation we're having about friendship too. It's like, it really narrows it down in the world when you're talking about like people who have found you and what you're doing and something you're putting it out, putting out there and then went to your site and clicked the about page. Like, yeah, this is... It's narrowed down all the way. So it's almost like, yeah, it's it, very often at the end of the podcast interviews I do, I say, like, look, if you made it all the way to this end of this interview, um, send me an email. Like, I, if you listen to this whole conversation, I'd probably like to meet you. So, um, yeah, I will say that right now. <laughs> but th- that is the filter, isn't it? Like, you've just listened to an hour and a half of me talking. So... Yeah, and it, we probably have something in common we should meet. And especially in you know, Cambridge, it's it's also not like you're 
in London or New York City or something like that. It's like, if you're here in Cambridge, yes, let's meet. That's a double filter. Yeah, it's sufficiently uh, out of the way that if someone kind of is visiting yeah. London, they would kind of have to do an hour long train journey. And, and, and people yeah. have, which is always really like flattering, like, why would you want to meet? Mm -hmm. them? But it's always been kind of really fun kind of from my end. Um, yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is that I, we, we, we talked about this a little bit when uh, we were when we met in Cambridge. You're sort of famous on the internet for replying to every email that you get. Like, how how do you do that? Slash, why do you do that? Because it would, uh, for, for example, as much as we both love Tim Ferriss, like, you know, you try and send him an email and you get this auto-respondent being like, I'm sorry, I'm not replying to emails for the next 20 years. <laughs> Don't try and contact me. <laughs> Whereas yeah. you, you're, you're openly like, hey, yeah, send me an email and, and we'll, we'll talk. Like, how, how, how does that work? How do you think about that? Well, first, it's just a matter of who you want to be in the world and how you want to be, you know, like uh, Tim, my friend Ramit Sethi, uh, they like this autoresponder, you can't reach me thing. I don't like that. I wouldn't feel good about that. I wouldn't make a change in some other way in my life if I felt that I was so famous that I needed an autoresponder. Um, I would find a way to be less famous so that I didn't need an autoresponder. Um, I like being the guy that replies to every email. Uh, so that's first and foremost. Like everything else I can say will rationalize that thing I just said. Mm. It's like, this is who I want to be. So but then the next thing is I get a huge sense of security. It's one of the, the, I get a deep sense of happiness from all the people I know around the world. And I have a system that I built. I built my own email client. Um, so it's at its core, it has this database of every single person I know. And so every email that comes in attaches itself to this central database. And that's where I keep what I know about this person. So I can get an email from jennifer from 12 years ago and as soon as i get it it's like oh my god it's jennifer from alaska i remember this girl who you know emailed 12 years ago about thinking of majoring in music and asked my you know my opinion on berkeley school of music and right there i can see our past emails jennifer good to hear from you again what's going on did you go to berkeley what's up it can honestly just be deeply rewarding to to see this email history and, and feel a connection with these people but then i also love knowing people from around the world so just like minutes before you and I connected, I checked my email one more time and there was like an email from uh, some guy who is a, a, a metallurgist in Slovenia. Oh. And I was like, cool, I know a metallurgist in Slovenia now. And he like has a few paragraphs telling me about himself and I'm like, how cool. In fact, some people who have heard of me through your show have emailed out of the blue. Oh, really? No and, way. Yeah. And, and um you know, something like, hey, you know, this is me. I'm in Saudi Arabia and this and that. And and uh, and I heard of you through Raleigh's show. And I'm like, how cool. And, you know, we trade a couple emails. It's like, now I know somebody in Saudi Arabia. If I were to ever go to Saudi Arabia someday, I would look up this guy. And so I do actually do that when I'm traveling. If I go somewhere I've never been before, um, you know, hey, it's my first time in Salzburg, Austria. Let's see who I know in Salzburg. You know, hey, Jens, uh, Derek Simmers. I'm in Salzburg for a few days. Do you want to meet up? Um, yeah, that's been really fun to kind of turn these random email connections into in-person uh, connections. And um, yeah, I just get a lot of deep satisfaction out of these connections. And time taken, it takes me a couple hours a day tops to do all my emails, sometimes just 20 minutes, sometimes um, sometimes when it gets really extreme, it can be 12-hour days where I'm just emailing. 
but it's exhausting, but it's all right. You know, um, it's worth it to me. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a sort of seeing your, the way that you reply to emails. And I, I actually first, for first emailed you after hearing about uh, hearing your thing on, on Tim Ferriss, where you suddenly, I guess, sort of opened the floodgates to a lot of people to email you. And, and I didn't realize his show was so popular. He was just an old friend of mine. I didn't know anybody who listened to his podcast. I'm like, yeah, here's my email address. Yeah, you know, just email me. The 12 hour days, dude, yeah. after the podcast came out, that was January 16th. Actually, sorry, it was Christmas 2015. And I'll never forget that because my next two months, full time, 12 hours a day, six days a week, were just answering emails from his podcast. My God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because because I was one of those people that emailed you and you and you sent like a really thoughtful reply. And I was thinking, wow, this guy, he must be getting thousands of emails right now because he's on on, on Tim Ferriss's podcast and he's he's taking the time to reply to me. And so I kind of made it like a sort of an, an ideal for myself that I would also try my best to re reply to as many emails as I could. And up, up, up until a certain point, I was very proud. Like, oh, you know, I was replying to every Instagram DM that I was getting until mm -hmm. it started to get super, super, super overwhelming. And it was like, it would be a full-time job to reply to these emails, which, you know, yeah. it, it kind of is for you when you get like a, a big a big influx of them. Um, so I think another thing I wanted to talk to you about is just this sort of the, the institution of life advice. Because certainly when I first emailed you, I think it was, I feel like it was about this idea of hell yeah or no. Um, but like, I, I imagine you get a lot of emails about of like fr from people asking you for advice about certain things and how, I wonder how you, how you deal with that. Cause like I get sort of a few, a few tens of emails each day and about half of them are like huge long essays with someone kind of laying out their life story and <laughs> sort of like bearing their soul to the email client and asking them for my advice about this sort of messy tangled situation that they're in. And I sort of think that. Uh, I part of me feels that uh, th th there's no real right answer here. Another part of me feels, how on earth can I, I am I possibly qualified to comment on this? I'm just a dude who makes videos about productivity on the internet. Uh, right. like, how how do you think about this? Um, first, for me, I think of them as writing prompts. So, if somebody's asking me a question that I've already answered in an article somewhere. Um, I just keep my URLs handy and I just send them. I say, good question. Here's the answer. Read this. Let me know if you're still, uh, if that helped. Or if I've read a book that specifically answers your question, I'll say, good question. Read this book. It answers bit better than I could here. Let me know when you do. Um, so that handles more than half of them. More than half of the emails I get asking my advice. I know the answer is in an article I've written or a book I've read. Um, but for the rest, I take it as a writing prompt. Sometimes I'll let emails sit for a week because somebody will ask me a question. I'll go, ooh, that's good. And I, instead of answering in my email client, I'll open up a new text document and I'll think around the subject. I might even spend two hours on it, um, but I'll take it as a writing prompt. And so basically I'm spending two hours writing what turns into an article. And then I post the article and then I send them the link to the article saying, that was a really good question. Thanks for the prompt. Here's uh, an article about that, that I wrote inspired by you. And so you'll notice that there's, it happens a few times in my articles that I say, like somebody asked me a question and you know, here's my thoughts. Um, so I really like that, but here's the bigger 
idea behind giving advice is that it's always easier to give advice than to take it because you're not because you're detached from the person you're seeing it from a distance whereas inside your head you've got so such a tangled mess of uh concepts in there that it's hard to figure things out yourself but when you see somebody else's situation from a distance you can see the overarching theme or you can see well you know it sounds like for your situation you should do this and then by by giving someone else advice you're actually kind of being your highest self right like you're you're giving the best advice because you're emotionally detached the emotions aren't confusing you because it's just an email um and then i found it useful that then you can take your own advice when you find yourself in a pickle um and yes you're filled with emotions about this but you can think for a second like oh if i were a stranger emailing myself asking advice it would be easier to say what to do i would say to do this therefore i'm going to take my own advice and do that so i find it useful to give advice um because of this because it puts you in your highest self and then you can take your own advice later oh okay yeah that makes a lot of sense like th that's given me a lot of like tips in the sense that I'll often kind of reply to email. So I've, I've, I've got a few like hotkeys now that I've set up to my most sort of answers to most, the most frequently asked questions. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, and, and so for, for example, in YouTube comments, I will invariably get the question on every single video that what keyboard is that? Cause it looks a bit weird and, and janky. So I've, I've now created a hotkey uh, to just post a link to that keyboard. Cause just cause I know like at least 20 yeah. people will ask on, on, on every video. But wow. the idea of, thinking of emails as writing prompts that's really good and I, I i suppose for me like it could turn into an article it could also just be a, a concept for a youtube video be like hey someone emailed mm -hmm. me asking this question we've had a few emails about this here is what i think about what to do in the summer holidays before university don't start right. studying start learning interesting skills like whatever whatever my answer to yeah. that thing would be um do you ever get a sense of like uh, imposter syndrome in the sense of like, what, why are these people, why do these people think I'm qualified to comment on this issue or have you sort of got no, be Well, because I do it too. Um, I have my heroes that every time I get stuck in a situation, I think, hmm, what would this person say? And I'd, sometimes I actually like start to write an email to this person to one of my heroes or one of the smart people I know that I think would know the answer to my predicament. And I'll write the email, but then I'll, I'll think, well, I don't want to waste his time. So how can I make this as simple as possible? So then I'll simplify it. And then before sending it, I'll think, well, hold on. I know him pretty well. What will he probably say to this? He'll probably say that. So let me address this now to save a back and forth. I'll address that thing now that I think he's going to say. And so I'll add more to it. And then I'll think, okay, well, now what will he say? I'll think, actually, I think I know what he would say to that too. So never mind. I don't need to bother him with an email at all. <laughs> I'll just, I think I, I, I think I've channeled him enough in my head now that I know what he would do. And so then I, I take his imaginary advice. Um, him being, I'm not even speaking about just one person. I'm just saying he, but actually it's like, yeah, a few different people that I would reach out to in different scenarios to ask what he or she would do. Um, yeah, so I, I end up composing this 
well thought out question and then just not emailing it. So when somebody emails me their predicament, I get it. I know how it goes and I'm happy to help because yeah, I've been in that position. Oh, awesome. Okay, so uh, a final thing I wanted to talk to you about is a sort of a, pre- a predicament that I've been having and I would like, I would love to hear more. <laughs> All right. About. And that is, so um, it's, it's related to the idea of goal setting because it's all very it's all very popular the, you know uh set these goals that are smart specific measurable achievable realistic timely some something along those lines and every business sort of business book i mean apart from yours <laughs> literally every business book apart from yours that i've been reading so talks about how the importance of setting kpis key performance indicators for your business and having like a sort of a five-year plan a 10-year plan and a one-year plan splitting that up into quarterly increments and when it comes to, for example, my my YouTube channel and like the the businesses businesses that kind of surround it, I I've always felt a little bit uneasy about the idea of setting these sort of numerical goals because you know what's the point of having a goal of I want to hit a million subscribers by twenty twenty one? Things like that just seem a little bit pointless, and. I'm not sure. I I feel like a lot of that is the fact that I read this at a kind of like a formative time when I was first sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd been dabbling with business for a few years and then I came across this and a lot of the stuff in here seems quite like anti-goals. So I wonder if that is still sort of your, your take on kind of goal setting and these sort of metrics. Yeah. Um, imagine you bought a car. And somebody said, oh, all right, you've got a car. Now, we're going to need to optimize this gas mileage here. We're going to get you the maximum miles per gallon out of this car. Now, what you need to do, now always watch your odometer. And while you're driving, you need to look at the ratio between the speed and uh, the this. And now make sure you know what gear you're in. In fact, you need to go manual transmission because sometimes you need to downshift, even though it's, you know. And somebody could really nerd out about this stuff and tell you how to maximize your fuel efficiency. And if they did that, it would be hard to say that they're wrong, right? Like it's hard to find fault in somebody saying these things. You'd think, all right, well, that's a good point. Yeah, I should be maximizing my fuel efficiency. But to me, it's missing the whole point of why you got a car. Like the reason you got a car is not to maximize your fuel efficiency or worry about how many numbers are on your odometer and try to make the odometer as high as it can be. You got a car just to get you somewhere. And that's it. And you you don't need to maximize the process of getting somewhere. And to me, a business is very often just a means to an end. You started a business um, because it's, something you'd enjoyed, something you enjoy doing, or somebody needed help with something, you realize that you had a solution that could help people. You charge an amount that will keep it sustainable um, and make everybody happy. And then that's it. It doesn't have to be super, super optimized. And so I think that all of this, um, you know, maximizing your return and analyzing every square inch of uh, floor space and all that, um, it's it's missing it's not wrong but it's missing the point of why you're doing this thing and then if you focus on that too much you might find that your enthusiasm for doing this thing has been destroyed mm. and then you lose interest in doing it and then you've then you really lost the whole point and in fact i'm going to make another music comparison with this because there is a dreary dreadful book out there called 
um, This Business of Music or something like that by Donald Passman. Um, sorry, Donald Passman, <laughs> but his book's been around for like 20 years and for, God, probably 30 years now. For 30 years, every musician has been told, you must read this book by Donald Passman. He's a, a entertainment lawyer that wrote this book about how to negotiate your record label contracts and the cross-collateralization clause that you'll find in your distribution agreement where they can hold back returns and returns. It's like so many musicians have been told that they must read this book if they want to be a professional musician. And so many times I would see somebody that, that just, let's say, loved playing drums. You know, as a teenager, they love the sound. They, they wanted to be John Bonham and they got a drum set and they practice their ass off and they play and they love it. They love smacking the drums. They, they love letting out this physical aggression and keeping a rhythm. And then somebody says, you know, they put down the drumsticks and somebody says, man, you're good. You know what? You could be a professional. You really need to read this book mm. by Donald Passman. And they just find that every time they read it, they keep falling asleep. Sorry, that's why I keep doing this face. It's like <laughs> chapter seven royalty agreements and i've seen some musicians completely lose all interest in being a professional musician because books like this tell them that they need to care a lot about the cross-collateralization agreement and their royalty contract and blah, blah 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 but it's like if that interests you great if you find that this is draining your energy well, then nothing is worth that. Like nothing is worth draining your excitement about something. So if somebody is telling you that, you know, you really should maximize your number of clicks and you should do A-B testing to find out this and see if you can get the maximum number of ad revenue from the such and such. If that excites you, then it's worth doing. And if it, if it drains you, then you need to stop doing that immediately and just know that nothing is worth training your energy there's my take on that oh okay so that that spoke to me in a, in a lot of ways because <laughs> so <laughs> i think uh yeah so one one area in which i've kind of heard heard this from a lot of kind of uh, advisors and and that i sometimes think for myself is uh i've got a few i've got a few online courses i've got one on, on how to study for exams another one on how to edit videos but instead of selling them on my own website and charging and charging money for them, I put them on Skillshare, which is sort of like Netflix mm -hmm. for online courses. And that means that if anyone wants to watch these courses, which are like sort of four hours long, they can just sign up to a free trial of Skillshare and then just watch it and then cancel the trial if they really want. Um, so I like the fact that it, it essentially lets people access the courses for free because then the information's out there. And I like the fact that I I don't have to then... So the, the alternative would be to host them on my own website to do the whole building an online course sales funnel, to get people into newsletter, to do this sort of drip feeding 25 emails in a row. And, and, and all, I just, the thought of that fills me with dread. And, and yeah. so even though I know I'm leaving money on the table by just putting my courses on Skillshare and then forgetting about them and moving on to the next thing that excites me, I'm definitely, definitely leaving money on the table. But, you know, it's, it's profitable. It's very profitable. It's sustainable. It works. Yeah. People can watch the stuff. Like, it, I, the thing I'm trying to get okay with is like, it's okay. It's fine. I can kind of do the bits that make me happy and forget about the optimization of the sales funnel. Right. Um, one of the most powerful ideas to remember about goals is that goals aren't there to shape 
the future. Like, not to sound new agey, and I swear I'm not, but like the future doesn't exist. The future is the name that we call our imagination. Um, all that really exists is the present moment uh, and your memories of the past. So a goal is only a good goal if it makes you take action in the present. So if a goal excites you and makes you do something and actually changes your present actions for the better, then it's a good goal. If it doesn't, if it makes you sleepy <laughs> or makes you dread something, then no matter how it's being praised, it's not a good goal for you. Goals only exist to change the present, your present actions for the better. That's it. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> I have to remind myself of this often. You know, I very often will think of many different goals in my diary or in my head. And I'll often think that's a, that's a really good goal. Yeah. That's really worthy. I should do that. But then it doesn't make me take action. So I guess it wasn't actually a good goal. It was a good goal in theory, but not in practice. But then there are some goals that when I think of them, I actually like, Oh, it was like, I just took like a, you know, a, um, the adrenaline shot was the uh, remember Pulp Fiction is the, the needle. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She says, yes. goes, ah. so some goals do that to me. I like think of a goal. I'm like, Oh my God. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. I was like, yeah. Okay. This is worth doing. I don't care if it's going to make money or not. That doesn't matter. Like this is worth doing because it's giving me this reaction. This is a good goal. Nice. Yeah. Like I, I this is actually ironically, advice that I've given people over email like I, I'll, I'll occasionally get an email from someone being like hey you know my goal is to read a book a week for the next year but I can't bring myself to do it and I would kind of reply with why why is that your goal where did that goal come from and I guess it sort of goes to that thing that it's we are definitely our higher selves when we're giving out advice and so in a way it, it just kind of reminds us that we should possibly be following that advice for ourselves yeah but yeah so thank you that was kind of the <laughs> list of things that i wanted to talk about to talk to you about we could keep going for for hours and hours but with the pulp fiction uh, needle in the chest yeah good yes to absolutely yeah. so again yeah, thank th thank you so much and thank you for continuing to inspire me and lots of other people through your writing and now you've got this podcast where you've got kind of these little sound bites of you and you've also been putting all of your other interviews on that so that's been really a really helpful and way of just yeah guess what ali you are the last one no way in one minute, I am done. I have done something like 55 interviews in the past few months. And when you asked me to do this one, it was just the time when I was thinking of winding down anyway. So I was like, I'm going to finish with Ollie's. That's it. So I am now saying no to all podcast requests for indefinite future. Um, yeah, this has been the concluding episode of season two of my <laughs> podcast has been to share um, all these interviews where I've been the interviewee. Um, after the the host the get uh, the after the host puts them up on live on their feed then, and says it's okay, then I put a copy of it on my feed too. So yeah, if you go to sivers.org and subscribe to my podcast, uh, you'll hear season one, which are just these tiny little two minute episodes of me sharing one idea per podcast, two minutes each. And then season two are these ninety minute long episodes of me being interviewed like this. And season three, I think I will go back to uh, tiny tidbits.
amazing i look forward to it but yeah so it's a it's an honor to be the the last on the list thanks for taking yeah. the time and i've certainly taken a lot away in terms of writing music friends life advice goals like all of the all of the stuff that we've been uh, we've been uh, riffing on so again thank you so much thanks for having me all right take care bye-bye all right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.